electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on our podcast, the highly leveraged book of Bill Huang, how Archegos Capital sent Wall Street reeling, and what is still coming to light about the bank and media stock dominoes. We're learning how some of the banks helped Bill Wang make all these large leveraged bets. Beeple's $69 million mystery buyer, Metacoven's identity revealed and why the NFT's hefty price tag is only the beginning of a movement. I had the opportunity to be part of this very important change or shift in how art has been perceived for centuries. And documentary filmmaker Ken Burns, the man behind dozens of docs on Americana, is out with a new series, his career of U.S. storytelling and this particular moment in history. This is the worst crisis because it's three viruses at once. It's the obviously the COVID virus. It's the 402-year-old virus of racial injustice, white supremacy. And it's also the age-old, very, very human virus of lying, misinformation, distortion, conspiracy, and all those working at once. Those stories, plus a dire warning from CDC Director Rochelle Walensky. We have so much to look forward to, so much promise and potential of where we are, and so much reason for hope. But right now, I'm scared. It's Tuesday, March 30th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. First up on today's podcast, unpacking the family office whose forced liquidation of billions of dollars of holdings prompted a sell-off in U.S. media stocks and Chinese tech stocks and left banks with billions of dollars in losses. For more on the saga, the swaps, and the highly leveraged book of Bill Huang, check out yesterday's Squawk Pod. But if you're mostly caught up, here's Becky. Of course, we're all continuing to watch and dig through what happened um, with Archegos. Here's what we're learning at this at this moment uh, in terms of these margin calls that caused all these ripple effects. Uh, we're, learning how, we're learning how some of the banks um, uh, helped Bill Wang uh, make all these large leverage bets less than a decade after uh, he was uh, punished for his part in the insider in the insider trading scheme. Uh, by the time Amira and Credit Suisse announced yesterday that they had faced losses that could be uh, Highly significant. Goldman and Morgan had already finished unloading their positions. Uh, but in terms of how this happens, it's a little more complicated than, than, a, than a bank just turning around and saying, we're out. What was happening last week was you saw some of the big Chinese n- names that, that Bill Wang had been in uh, falling, falling precipitously. By midweek, you had the Viacom situation, which was also something they owned, and obviously Discovery as well. Now, it was at that point that the bank started to call and make margin, um, uh, make margin calls, effectively saying, can, can, you, can you come up with the money? It was less clear as the week went on that they could come up with the money. Uh, and yes, they were saying, please give us more time. Now, interestingly, interestingly, some of the banks, including Goldman, contractually have to give their clients time. In fact, they had what was called a margin account. 
And that meant that they would have to get a 20, 24 hours notice effectively uh, to, quote, cure the problem. That's what would happen. They'd have to cure the problem. Um, however, Morgan Stanley and Credit Suisse, the way their accounts are set up are different. They can actually almost unilaterally um, call a default, if you will. Now, the second a bank calls a default on an Archegos, it creates a cross default, if you will, for all the banks. And so that then effectively the stampede begins and that's what happened. So you had uh, banks like Goldman Sachs and others who wanted to get out, who couldn't effectively or couldn't press the button to say go. They actually had to wait for Credit Suisse and Morgan Stanley to go first, um, which raises some questions about why Credit Suisse, since they were one of the first to go uh, or to get out effectively to, to call the default, didn't get out of more of these names themselves uh, as fast as Goldman and Morgan uh, appeared to have. We'll see. But uh, Goldman and Morgan it, had to have been bracing for this and be prepared for it and be, just been ready to move a lot faster, which is you know something Goldman is well, known it, for. Well, it appears that Goldman decades, was, Goldman was waiting to do this. They wanted to. Uh, and yeah. Morgan Stanley, I, but, I think, I, I, you know, interestingly, you look at who was running those banks and also their role in the financial crisis. Um, and I'm thinking of James now, Morgan Stanley, who's seen the crisis. David saw the crisis. Yep. Um, and I think that if you look at some of the David names who were running some of the other firms at the time, I mean, Credit Suisse now and some of the others, I, I'm not going to make judgments about, about risk management. But nonetheless, I, I think they were all on it, so to speak, but not clearly on it enough uh, in terms of what Credit Suisse and Nomura are now uh, dealing with. But they were all, they'd also had potentially even bigger loans outstanding. So it might have been harder for them to get out uh, as quickly. So. I guess my other question, Andrew, and I don't know if you found this in your reporting, but I, I, I wasn't able to figure this out yesterday. At what point did all of these banks realize that this guy was basically using the same stuff for margin loans at different places? At what point did they realize, like, oh, my gosh, it's not just us. It's what he's done here and here um, and here so and my, here. He had six know, different prime brokers he was working with. Right. It's funny. I, I think that most of them actually did or under I think more of them understood it than didn't at least by midweek, uh, there is, at the moment... Yeah, midweek? There but when did they actually, figure it out? Was it a week ago? That's what I'm saying. About a, I would say at least a week ago. But I would also say that at, at the moment, it, it doesn't appear that there's actually a real allegation being made that they were lied to yet. Now, we'll see. Maybe that will change. But, but, but internally, as you talk to people, nobody's saying that Archegos said, you know, didn't tell them about one piece of this and to only told them another, about another piece. And that may come out in the end because of the way total return swaps work and how some of this leverage was being applied. So we're, we'll, we'll see how it all plays out. But I'm, I think if I'd you were to shocked, get, I mean, inside of, get inside of Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley, they, they would not tell you that they did not understand uh, the completeness of the picture. Questions now arising about a mystery charity. Not going to be a mystery after you're finished here, Robert. Joins us now with more, Robert Frank. Well, we're we're going to yeah, Joe. We're going to ask some more questions. Uh, Bill Wong's charity. It's called the Grace and Mercy Foundation. It has about five hundred million dollars in assets. That actually makes it one of the hundred largest foundations in the country. Yet it is almost unknown in the broader charity world. Now, the foundation's latest IRS filings show it purchased shares of several private offshore entities all of which lost money. It also had a large Morgan Stanley swap loss investment 
That lost $5 million. Regulators say all of this is very unusual for a charity. He did donate one very profitable investment in Amazon. Andrew, you'll like this one. In 2018, he gave the foundation Amazon shares worth $30 million. He bought them for just under $10 million. So that's $20 million gain. But he not only avoided the capital gains on that $20 million, but he gets to deduct the gift to offset his income taxes. Now, the foundation had over $16 million in grants in 2018, so he's been very generous with this money, with $5.5 million going to the Fuller Foundation, $2 million going to the Fuller Theological Seminary, $1.2 million to the Museum of the Bible, also a lot of big gifts uh, to schools in Inglewood, New Jersey, and Manhattan. So look, guys, we should be very clear. This foundation, $500 million. He has been extremely generous with this money every year. A lot of questions, though, about the way it has invested its assets and whether those investments are related to or perhaps serving his family office investments. Guys? Yeah, that's that's that immediately is is sort of the feeling that you because it's so bizarre. Some of the you know, it's to, to run your charity the same way you're running your your crazy hedge fund, which we now know was, um, you know, there was some big bets being made. And that's normal, not normally what you might think for the way you'd have a foundation invested. And then you, it immediately begs the question, is there any synergy, if you will, symphony between the, the positions? Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and especially when I talked to some former attorneys general yesterday and attorneys who specialize this, it's the offshore private entities when a foundation has a fiduciary duty to invest that money strictly on behalf of the charity. Why would a foundation invest in a private offshore entity, all of which lost money, in addition to an elaborate Morgan Stanley swap loss that generated a loss of $5 million? All of those you know, maybe he'll go back and say, well, these were great investments at the time. It's just so unusual for a foundation to make those kinds of investments. Usually they're very plain vanilla conservative investments just to preserve capital and grow it so you can give more away. A CDC director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, out with a new warning that the uptick in cases in COVID could mean another surge is on the way. I'm going to reflect on the recurring feeling I have of impending doom. We have so much to look forward to, so much promise and potential of where we are, and so much reason for hope. But right now, I'm scared. Um, I know what it's like as a physician to stand in that patient room, gowned, gloved, masked, shielded, and to be the last person to touch someone else's loved one because their loved one couldn't be there. I know what it's like when you're the physician, when you're the healthcare provider, and you're worried that you don't have the resources to take care of the patients in front of you. In the meantime, President Biden called for governors and mayors to reinstate mask mandates to help avoid a fourth surge. I'm reiterating my call for every governor, mayor, and local leader to maintain and reinstate the mask mandate. Please, this is not politics. Reinstate the mandate if you let it down. And business should require masks as well. The failure to take this virus seriously. Precisely what got us in this mess in the first place. However, in the midst of all of this, there is some good news. A CDC report that was released yesterday confirmed that the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines are proving highly effective at preventing infections in real world, world conditions, both symptomatic and asymptomatic. If you run through some of the data on that, it is incredibly impressive and definitely gives a lot of reason for hope. 
Next on Squawk Pod, the man known as Medicoven, or the guy who spent $69 million on the Beeple NFT. The mystery buyer's identity revealed, and why, to him, it's way more than a giant JPEG. There's going to be hundreds and thousands of people from around the world who are going to adopt this medium, a digitally native medium, to monetize art, and there's going to be an economy around it. That conversation is right after this. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Remember a couple of weeks ago, right as the NFT craze started to enter the mainstream, a digital artist known as Beeple sold a non-fungible token he'd created to a mystery crypto investor for $69 million? $69 million. I think it probably means digital artist here to stay. It was a Christie's auction for the books, ushering in a new era of collectibles and blockchain-based digital images that now rival Picasso's and Monet's in terms of prices paid. At the time, the Beeple buyer was known as Metacoven, co-founder of an NFT collection known as Metapurse, which collects NFTs to display in the Metaverse, that is, across virtual museums. So what did Metacoven pay the $69 million for? Technically, he got a long string of numbers and letters, a code that exists on the Ethereum blockchain, and he got a giant JPEG. But as you'll hear, it's really much more than that to him. Here's Andrew. We have a, I'm so excited for this, a first TV interview with the crypto investor who bought the $69 million NFT at Christie's. And for that, we want to get right over to Robert Frank. Robert. Andrew, good morning. Well, the world knows him as Metacoven. He is the mysterious crypto investor who paid that $69 million for an NFT. His real name is Vinesh Sundarisan. He is the Singapore-based CEO of Portkey Technologies. He's the co-founder of BitAccess. That's a Bitcoin ATM provider. And he is the founder of the Metapurse NFT project. Vinesh, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thank you, so the, the question that everyone was asking when they saw these headlines is why would anyone pay $69 million for a JPEG and a hyperlink? Sure. Uh, I think the, uh, uh, this is a significant piece in art history. And uh, so- sometimes these things uh, take some time for everyone to recognize and realize, but, but I'm okay with that. Uh, I had the opportunity to be be part of this very important change or shift in how art has been uh, perceived for centuries. Uh, This is a change in medium. That means that there's going to be hundreds and thousands of people from around the world who are going to adopt this medium, uh, a digitally native medium uh, to to monetize art. And and there's going to be economy around it. And and the first piece of of such a uh, important uh, movement uh, going forward is going to be quite valuable in the future also. So that's that's part of why um, we paid so much. And in a sense, you paid whatever you originally paid for those roughly 42,000 Ether that you used to purchase this. What do you think you originally paid for the Ether that you used to buy this? And when did you first start investing in crypto? Sure. So, yeah, I've been in the crypto space since uh, 2013. Uh, it's it's not that simple to uh, define what I paid for the Ethereum because uh, I've been uh, I've been not like 
a maximalist investor, like investing in just one of these uh, technologies. So I've been investing in Bitcoin, Ethereum, Polkadot, uh, even Flow. Uh, that's that's something very recent. So like the money I paid to Christie's end of the day was in Ethereum, but it's not it's not the Ethereum I, I initially bought them, right? So it's it's over a period of time, and it's worth six nine dollars to me, six nine thousand uh, sorry six nine million dollars to me. And and just to give people a sense of your success, you know, you didn't start out as a crypto investor with a lot of money. How much did you originally yeah. invest in crypto? And and you must be worth what hundreds of millions? Are you a crypto billionaire at this point? Uh, so. Um... I, I didn't start with uh, any money actually, so I, I didn't. I didn't. It's not like I put in my savings and I started. I started working for crypto, right? Like once I discovered crypto, I've been day in day out working on crypto since 2013, early 2013. I've I've, I've made multiple startups, but all along the way, the more important uh, thing was the knowledge I acquired about all these companies that were growing in the space and the opportunity it gave me to invest in them. Um, not not has equity because that's still very hard to get into, right? Like it's a it, it, it's only for a few people to get into the equity rounds of of a lot of companies. But crypto gave me the uh, opportunity to participate in in high growth uh, technologies, right? Like in the early stages. So that's how uh, mostly uh, uh, my I made my money. Uh, yeah, like uh, uh, my my net worth. You know, it's it's. It depends on on where the crypto market is. So, uh, yeah, I, I I could say I I I'm I don't want to give a specific number uh, to my net worth. It varies, but I, I, what I could say is most of my money is not in NFTs, right? It's in other crypto. Hi, thank thanks so much for being here, Vignesh. Um, we've you. been speculating that whoever bought this was doing it because they wanted to diversify their assets and have something else. So you could put it in something besides just some sort of crypto. Is, is that why you did it? Um, actually, it's uh, larger than uh, definitely larger than that. Uh, uh, NFTs could become an interesting asset class. And I think that's that's something uh, only time would, would tell us and, and, and as to whether that will work out. Uh, but for me, I, I think the model of patronage uh, of arts and how uh, how history in history who have uh, been patrons to the art and culture and artists in general uh, has has now changed right like there is this new new capital uh, that's that's now available across the world and i think uh, the more important thing to focus here is to is to look at you know like artists and new form of art uh, that's going to be supported and and that's one of the reasons why I I, I got into this auction because uh, that's my focus into, into the future also. Like I'm I'm very interested in supporting artists from diverse backgrounds from across the world, and that's what I will be doing through the Metaverse Fund also. Hey, Vignesh, last week um, we we had Yellen and Powell both. Um, I don't know. It said some concerning things about crypto, uh, Bitcoin specifically. I know, I know you probably saw it. So we had a move from about 60,000 back to 50,000. And everyone mm-hmm. wonders, are we headed for one of those uh, one of those moves that we've seen in previous years that will, you know, when you go from 20 back down to 4,000, that'll get your attention. So it went back to 50. Today, it's almost back to 60. It's up like another 3% today. It immediately. So in the last two or three days, it's gained another 20 percent. 
It's not a currency, but do you think that regulate, it is a currency, but I have trouble trying to figure out how you'd use it, but do you think that there are concerns about uh, a Yellen, a Powell, a, a, a regulators around the world to somehow harness this and just pull the rug out from all the crypto investors, or it is already too big and decentralized? Mm, I definitely think the movement has been growing over years, and uh, we've had the space to grow and experiment a lot over the, uh, over the past few years. I mean, if regulators were, you know, even more tighter in the in the previous few years, maybe it would have stifled the innovation even more. But I think we are at a point where uh, we've seen the positive impacts of crypto in the world also. And so definitely uh, before something, uh, something happens in terms of, you know, the regulators deciding against it, because initially it was all just the negative news about about crypto and and it being used for uh, various nefarious activities that that was that was on the news right but now uh, i i hope that with which this kind of purchase and and this kind of art movement also happening on top, top of crypto it'll be looked at more as more of something that's uh, net positive to the world and that will also go into the considerations or consideration of various regulators in the world because yeah, you, like it's it's. Are you going to ban art also, right? Like that's that's the real question here uh, to various uh, countries because like an artist in a in a country like Philippines or Thailand or India now can make their first thousand dollars, five hundred dollars on the internet, and it has made this this movement has made it easy. So I I, I think what crypto meant five years ago and what it means today is very different. So I, I think all these governments and, and regulators would definitely reconsider and, and look at what positively, net positive crypto has done. I want to go back to the auction for a second um, and mm-hmm. just go take us through your mind when you walked into the auction. I mean, you didn't walk in virtually, if you will. Did you have a high price? Did you, did you have a price in your mind? You say, I'm not going over this. And then you saw it go over and you said, OK, I will go. Did you think I'll go up to $100 million worth of uh, uh, in terms of what? Well, just tell us about the as you're watching the sure. price go up, what you're thinking. Sure. So uh, I get uh, the way Christie's uh, work, uh, the auction works, is that you, you, you cannot really uh, um, there, there is always a max bid, right? Like because they they are the ones who who set a max bid limit on your account, so it's not like you can you can just walk in there and and just keep raising the bids. And and the other part is you cannot just put a high bid, right? Like it's it's always two fifty k above the previous uh, bid, and that's how it works. Uh, so when I when I when I was speaking to Christie's before the auction. I, I had this. I, I got this idea. Was this going to be quite competitive? So yeah, we did. Uh, we didn't make sure that we have a higher limit. I, I don't want to, you know, disclose uh, what and uh, uh, talk about it now because it's it's, you know, it, it's now done and and I'm happy that uh, we could acquire uh, for for uh, what what we paid for. But uh, yeah, definitely, uh, I was I was I was very motivated and and and, and ready. Uh, to go uh, even beyond what we paid for it uh, uh, at this auction at that point. Um, and, and I just believe that it is that important of a piece in history, art history. Then, yes, one last question, and we thank you so much for joining us today. What do you think that $69 million Beeple will be worth in five or 10 years? So because it's an NFT and because it's, it's purely digital and, and it's the starting piece of this whole movement, 
Uh, it, it very much depends on where crypto is going to go, where this movement is going to go. Uh, but it'll not be a simple resale, right? Like we are, it's not going to be like uh, it goes back on Christie's and 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 it's it gets resold. There'll be multiple forms to it, and uh, you would see that you know it's 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 going to take its own life. Uh, that's what makes NFTs very interesting because it need not be just a piece of art. It can be thousand other things. Uh, I know, like I'm I'm just speaking vague right now, but uh, there is lot of ways for me to monetize uh, this specific piece also without disturbing the uh, sanctity of the piece so that is the route i will take I, I don't consider or i don't want to be reselling it anytime soon or, or probably even even in 10 years from now i don't i i'm not thinking about reselling the piece great and yes interesting thank you so much for joining us thank you from now on, I'd really like to be known as Meta Kernan, Meta Andrew, Andrew, you like Meta Sorkin, Meta Sorkin. You know, it works with anything. Robert Meta Frank. It works with anything, uh, really. Uh, I don't know whether you're that like good it. for you. Robert Meta Frank. How long is that really going to last? I mean, 4,000 years for gold, maybe longer, right? Probably uh, that it was valuable. Probably goes longer than at least four. And what do we got? Uh, 12 years, 11 years, has it really taken that mantle? We'll know someday, but I, I, I'm not willing to say that uh, at, at this point because yeah. I don't know. I love gold. We used to play that all the time. And if you hold it and look at it and, and have a, uh, you know, a, 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 a Canadian maple leaf or some beautiful or even a bar, it, there's a reason. You can feel the value in it when you hold it, I think. And it's actually got some uses. So Not the same as an NFT? Yeah, it doesn't seem to be the same. You know what? That uh, Beeple might have a, a pretty neat NFT, but the very first one could be, if, if it does become something, I, I see what he was saying, that to get the very first one that went for, for big money, that maybe that even adds value down the road. I don't know. What do you got? Do you think five years from now that's worth? I don't know. I mean, I... I'm not saying know. that he's wrong, because clearly the guy has made a lot of money being very early in crypto, doing right. that since 2013. He's he's made a ton of money doing that. I, I don't get it, but I would say the same thing about a lot of pieces of modern art. Exactly. I don't get that We've sometimes said that either. before, the one with the line across. But if you, uh, what's, if what's you were that? listening yeah. to him, didn't you think that he he's already starting to think of ways that he's going to somehow monetize this? Maybe he's going to sell pieces of the pieces I, I sort of you sort of got the idea that he was going to find other ways to to do. He, he, there was there's a it sounded to me like there was a grander plan than just holding it uh, as a piece of art. I don't know. Probably. Yeah, probably. But who, who knows? I mean, I understand where he's coming from and what his thoughts are on these things. It's just personally to me. I, I don't get it. But OK, it, it's no crazier you know, that, than that's than not some saying of the, anything. It, some of the art when we were, where were we? I can't, it might have been London or, but, but they are some crazy art out there that's worth something. It was a person's yeah. unmade bed. It had an ashtray next to it, yeah. and some butt set, you know, it was, it was like, I mean, I tried to like it. I tried. I, I tried to like it, but I couldn't get, uh, I'm not really sure. And what's, I always forget his name. What's his name, Becky, with the line across, you know, it's red up here. And with orange the three lines, the sherbet looking thing. Yeah, I'm forgetting his name right now, too. But um, he he's the himself. one we always, paint, we he, always point to. Right. Yeah, we so, always point to that and say, yeah, my kid could do these things. But again, right. we're Neanderthals when it comes to some of these things. So who knows? Oh, don't use that word. Rothko. Please. Right. Mark Rothko. Rothko. Sorry. That's it. Triggered yeah. you. Neanderthal. Yeah. Right.
I'm, I'm, a, I'm at mm. least one <laughs> above that. I think I'm uh, the next one, Cro-Magnon, I think. Maybe. Coming up on Squawk Pod, documentary filmmaker Ken Burns, his new series on Ernest Hemingway, the streaming landscape on the whole, and imagining a world beyond crisis. The streaming situation, the documentary world, has really, really opened up. But I think that in the end, PBS will always cross the best science, the best nature, the best performance. It's a golden age right now. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin, along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. Another pandemic milestone. According to the Motion Picture Association, the number of streaming subscriptions worldwide reached 1.1 billion in 2020. For a closer look at how the pandemic has shaped how we consume content, let's welcome documentary filmmaker Ken Burns. His latest film, Hemingway, co-directed with Len Novick, premieres on PBS on April 7th through or April 5th through April 7th, I should say. It's also going to be available to stream for free on PBS platforms. And Ken, it's great to see you. Thank you for being here today. Thank you, Becky. Great to be back. You know, you're an incredible filmmaker, uh, an incredible historian. And looking at what we've lived through the last year, I just wonder how you're going to kind of deal with this huge event. I know you've called it the the, fir- the fourth greatest event in terms of uh, the pain and suffering that it's caused in, in our history for the United States. How, how do you look at it already, even though we're still so close to all of the events and haven't escaped it yet? Yeah, we have not escaped it. And so for somebody in the history business, you've got to have 10 years, 15 years, who knows the way things are accelerated, maybe less than that. But I think this is the worst crisis because it's three viruses at once. It's the obviously the COVID virus of a year and a quarter. It's the 402-year-old uh, virus of racial injustice, white supremacy. And it's also the age-old, very, very human virus of lying, misinformation, distortion, conspiracy. And all those working at once are the greatest threat, I believe, or have at least revealed how fragile our institutions, our democratic institutions are. And that has got to be scary to just about anybody in any field. Uh, the interesting thing is I've been in with PBS since the very beginning of my professional life, and we were totally suited for the pandemic. Um, We just went into action. We reach every classroom in America. We have, in essence, the largest classroom. So we started offering things, you know, broadcast, but also streaming right away. And we saw a total uptick in not only um, the audience, but we saw the increased uh, sense that PBS has, as, as it's been for years, the number one brand in the United States. Now, I've because I've spent my entire professional life with PBS, I'm, I'm sort of part of the tortoise, you know, and we've given the hair uh, new running sneakers for the last few years. Uh, the streaming situation, the documentary world has really, really opened up. But I think that in the end, PBS will always cross the best science, the best nature, the best performance, the best public affairs, the best children, and I'm told the best history pro- programming on no longer the <laughs> dial. Uh, really, I think, positions us in a really good way. But it's a golden age right now. What did you see at PBS? Because I'll admit, we went back. We had so much time at home. We went back and watched the National Park um, series again and, and, and went through that. You must have seen We had it on uh, DVD, though. And I, I'm guessing that the PBS app must have had a lot of extra activity with people at home looking for things to maybe take their mind off of what they were dealing with. 
It's huge. You know, a month ago when we, re- I mean, a year ago when we realized that baseball season was going to be canceled, I just said, let's just stream my baseball series. And as it turned out, the season wasn't canceled, but it was a kind of deformed and abbreviated one that didn't, you know, satisfy uh, everybody or, or most teams. And I think as we approach opening day, it's extraordinarily fraught um, with uh, the possibilities because we seem to be uh, you know, that wave, it, it, we're on our surfboards and that big wave is coming up, the fourth one, unfortunately, and we'll see. But we're, we're really, I think, well suited to do that. And the reason I've stayed with public broadcasting since the late 70s, so I'm a, you know, a long hauler, as they say, is because I've got complete creative control and they give me time. I could go, save for my Vietnam or country music, I could go to a premium uh, cable channel or a streaming service and say, I need $31 million to do each of those. That's basically what the budget was, huge, because of, the, uh, of, of, of what, how we do it. And they would have given me the money, but they wouldn't have given me 10 years to do them, which is what I needed. <laughs> and what, we're, we're, we're ramped up now, even in COVID, working on eight different projects at once. We'll have a four-part, eight-hour series on Muhammad Ali to complement the biography of Ernest Hemingway that's coming out next Monday. And streaming well, at the well, same time for that. free. Let's talk about Hemingway. What you found, what's different. He seems like a subject who has been so closely studied and so many of us know so well. What did you find that was new, that will surprise people, that maybe change their perspective on things? Well, I think when you get 100 years away from when somebody's writing at their best, it's important to kind of dust it off and remind us why he's such an extraordinary writer. And we've done that with the short stories and the novels and the nonfiction. But I think the thing about Hemingway, the reason why we think we know him, is because of the myth about him, this big, brawling, hyper-masculine guy, maybe toxic masculine guy, you know, big game hunter, outdoorsman, deep sea fisherman, lover of women, brawler, drinker. All of those things are true, but they hide a deep uh, inner life, which we were able to kind of get through, penetrate the mythology that he helped construct about himself, a lot of it fraudulent, and get to some sensitivities, get to some anxieties, get to some vulnerabilities that remind us how topical he is now. I'll give you one or two examples. He wrote a couple of short stories up in Michigan and Hills Like White Elephants that put himself or put the reader in the the mind of a woman who's being, um, how shall we say, toxically manipulated by a male, which is sort of what he did, at least he pretended to do all his life. So all of a sudden that rearranges our own molecules. He's very interested in gender fluidity. He has his four wives cut their hair short. He grows his long. You've got an interesting character. And so I think what Lynn and I have done is sort of exposed uh, the fraudulence of the myth and gotten around it to get at the much more interesting real person and the turbulent and in the end, as we all know, tragic life of Ernest Hemingway. But what remains undeniable is just how spectacular his writing is and how he changed American writing. He is, and, and, and literature in the world, he is the most important writer in the 20th century. So I, I can't wait for you to see it. It's right. super complicated. Ken, I want to thank you very much for being here. We've missed you, but it's good to see you, and it's good to see uh, this new content that you have coming out, too. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you yep. for your time. Lots going on. Thank you. That's the show for today. Thank you for listening, as always. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Netta Sorkin, what's up? 
for all the fun. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. I couldn't do meta squawk. I just, I'm done. And to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.